0: Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll discuss the Voices Voix letter of concern to the federal party leaders with Alex Neve of Amnesty International Canada. We'll hear from Sheila Block about Canada's color-coded labor market. And we'll talk to Derek O'Keefe of the Canadian Peace Alliance, about the concerns he and others have about NATO's recent intervention in Libya.
0: First, the alert headlines for the week of April 7th, 2011.
1: NDP leader Jack Layton has announced plans to double the Canada and Quebec pension plans over seven years and to amend bankruptcy laws to ensure pensioners and those on disability are the priority when companies go out of business. Leighton's plan would also make it possible for Canadians to top up their pension plans through RRSPs and private savings, which would effectively mean some 11 million people without benefits would be able to open public pension accounts. Leighton recommitted to boosting the guaranteed income supplement to $700 million, a plan he's been pushing for some time and one that's been adopted by Liberal leader Michael Ignatieff in his party's platform.
0: The Libyan government has said it is open to any political reform, but Muammar Gaddafi must stay in power. A spokesman told Reuters that Colonel Gaddafi was a unifying figure and insisted his forces only targeted armed rebels, not civilians. Gaddafi's deputy foreign minister has traveled to Greece to discuss a possible ceasefire to the conflict. Meanwhile the New York Times reports at least two of Gaddafi's sons are proposing a resolution that would entail pushing their father aside to make way for a transition to a constitutional democracy under the direction of one of the sons. Meanwhile, fighting has continued in the east of the country where the rebels have been trying to regain ground lost in recent days and coalition aircraft attacked military vehicles believed to belong to Colonel Gaddafi's forces.
1: French and UN helicopters have fired on military camps operated by Ivory Coast incumbent leader Laurent Bagbo in an effort to halt attacks on civilians. The presidential palace was also hit in the helicopter attacks, witnesses said. The strikes came as fighters backing Mr. Bagbo's rival, Alasan Ouattara, stepped up their attempts to take control of the main city, Abidjan. Mr. Bagbo has refused to quit despite UN approved results saying Mr. Ouattara won last November's election. Many residents in Abidjan, a city of 5 million people, are said to be trapped indoors without food, water or electricity. Pro-Bagbo forces have been accused of launching attacks on civilians and UN staff. The UN, which has 9,000 peacekeepers in the country, said it had the mandate to respond to heavy weapons attacks against UN staff or civilians. Meanwhile, the UN has sent an envoy to investigate a massacre of hundreds of civilians in the western town of Dueque last week. Both sides have said the other was responsible for the killings.
0: On Monday, workers at Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant began dumping water with low levels of contamination into the sea to free up room to store more highly radioactive water leaking at the site. About 11,500 tonnes of water will be released into the sea at the crippled nuclear plant. Water with a higher level of radioactivity leaking from the number two reactor can then be stored. Operator TEPCO has been struggling for more than three weeks to regain control at the plant after the huge earthquake and tsunami knocked out the cooling systems. The water to be released into the sea contains some 100 times the legal limit of radiation. According to Japan's Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency, the contaminated water is not harmful to people's health and the dumping is necessary to avert an even bigger danger.
1: Preliminary results in Haiti's presidential elections suggest musician Michel Sweet Mickey Martelli won the runoff vote on March 20th. He defeated ex-senator and former first lady Merland Maniga, officials quoted by news agencies say. Turnout in the second round was high and voting was largely peaceful, although still marred by fraud. Haiti is struggling to rebuild after the January 2010 earthquake and to cope with a cholera epidemic. Final results are not expected until April 16th at the earliest. Mr. Martelli benefited from the support of five candidates eliminated in the first round. Fellow musician Wyclef Jean, whose own candidacy was ruled invalid, also backed Mr. Martelli.
0: In Afghanistan, protests against the burning of a Koran by an American pastor have entered their fourth day. On Friday, seven employees of the United Nations were killed in the northern Afghan city of Mazar-e-Sharif after local residents stormed the U.N. compound following a protest against Quran burnings. The attack shocked many Afghan observers because Mazar-e-Sharif has long been considered one of Afghanistan's safest cities.
1: The New York Times is reporting the Obama administration is now privately pushing for a way for Yemen's president Ali Abdullah Saleh to be eased out of office. Saleh has ruled Yemen for over three decades and has been a close partner to the United States in counterterrorism operations. The Times reports the key to Saleh's departure would be arranging a transfer of power that would enable U.S. counterterrorism operations in Yemen to continue. Meanwhile, the Yemeni government is continuing to use violent force to crush the anti-government protest movement. At least 12 protesters were killed earlier today in the city of Taiz, when security forces opened fire. In the port city of Hudaida, the armed men in civilian clothes opened fire on protesters, wounding at least 300.
0: A new book by the late African-American scholar Manning Marable claims that one of Malcolm X's killers remains alive, unpunished, and free. Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention by Marable aims to paint the definitive portrait of what happened that day and revise and re-examine the life story of one of the icons of black America. As well as naming his killer, Professor Marable reveals Malcolm X as a bisexual who had an affair with a white businessman and exaggerated his early life of crime. Manning Marable died from complications related to pneumonia three days before the book was released. He had been working on it for ten years.
1: UN's top human rights body that commissioned the Goldstone Report of Israel's 2009 incursion into Gaza will continue to treat it as a legitimate working document even though the lead author has backtracked from some of the report's most damning allegations against Israel. Israel has called for the report to be withdrawn after Richard Goldstone, a former South African judge, and UN war crimes prosecutor said in a Washington Post op-ed piece that he was reconsidering the conclusion that Israel deliberately targeted civilians during the three-week offensive against Palestinian militant group Hamas. Last month a majority of the Human Rights Council's 47 members voted to pass the report up to the General Assembly recommending that it ask the powerful UN Security Council to submit it to prosecutors at the International Criminal Court. Such a move is unlikely to pass the Security Council, where Israel's strongest ally, the United States, has a veto. But the mere suggestion of bringing war crimes charges against Israel has angered the government there. The Goldstone report concluded that both Israel and Hamas committed potential war crimes and possible crimes against humanity.
0: The price of oil shot through the $121 per barrel mark on April 3rd, returning to levels not seen since August 2008. Oil has been climbing consistently since last autumn as growing confidence in the global economic recovery boosted demand. But the pace accelerated sharply in mid-February as the unrest that toppled regimes in Tunisia and Egypt spread to Libya, which is Africa's third largest producer. But it is Saudi Arabia's overwhelming dominance of global oil supplies that itself is a key factor in soaring prices. Oil buyers are growing increasingly concerned that the oil-rich nation may not be immune to the upheavals sweeping the Middle East. Last month, the Saudi king launched a package of wage rises and job creation schemes worth hundreds of billions of dollars in an attempt to douse the sparks of civil unrest blown over from Egypt and Libya.
1: China's best-known artist Ai Weiwei remains missing more than a day after he was detained by Chinese police. Chinese authority detained him and his wife on Sunday and seized more than 30 computers from his studio. Weiwei is best known for designing the Bird's Nest Stadium for the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing. In March, Weiwei accused the Chinese government of trying to silence dissident voices.
0: Those are the alert headlines for the week of April 7, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of April 7, 2011. The Palestinian Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions National Committee has launched an international campaign to stop the Jewish National Fund and strip it of its official charity status. The JNF is instrumental in dispossessing indigenous Palestinians from their land, preventing Palestinian citizens of Israel from owning or leasing over 90% of land in Israel, and literally covering up ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages by planting trees on top of or around the land. To sign the JNF Call for Action and to find out about more opportunities to stop the JNF, go to www.stopthejnf.org.
1: Former Afghan MP Malale Joya has said, No nation can donate liberation to another nation. This is certainly the case for Canada's involvement in the war in Afghanistan, where civilian casualties spiked in 2010 and the rate of killing is increasing each month. The Canadian Peace Alliance has organised a Pan-Canadian Day of Action on April 9th to demand that Canadian troops leave Afghanistan immediately. If you're in Vancouver, meet at the Downtown Public Library at 1 o'clock p.m. In Toronto, meet across from the U.S. Consulate, 360 University Avenue at noon.
0: Join community and labour activists in Toronto on April 9th to protest the aggressive conservatism of Mayor Rob Ford. Since taking office in November, Ford has made clear attacks on public transit, unions, public services and Toronto's environmental plans. Meet at Toronto City Hall at 1 o'clock p.m. to tell Mayor Ford these are our services. This is our city.
1: Bradley Manning has been in solitary confinement for the past 10 months for allegedly providing classified U.S. material to WikiLeaks. On the weekend of April 9th, public demonstrations are being organized across the U.S. to support Manning and democratic intelligence sharing and to expose the torturous conditions under which Manning is being held. For those in Canada, rallies being organized for Vancouver on April 10th. Meet at the U.S. Consulate at 2 o'clock p.m.
0: Eve Engler, author of Canada and Israel, Building Apartheid, and The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, will be speaking in Montreal on April 12th. Engler will discuss how the Harper government has damaged Canada's international reputation and lost the vote for a seat at the U.N. Security Council. This free talk will begin at 7 o'clock p.m. at Concordia Hall.
1: A conference on niobium mining in Oka will be held at the University of Quebec at Montreal on April 14th. Speakers include Ellen Gabriel, Mohawk from Ghanasetake, Alain Denault, author of Noir Canada, and Simon Dubois of the Oka Citizens Committee. For more information, please go to solidarite avec le autocton.org
0: Alternatives and Canadian Dimension have partnered to organize an international conference on climate justice and ecological alternatives. Cochabamba Plus One features dozens of speakers from around the world, including, among others, Pablo Solon, Bolivian ambassador to the United Nations and initiator of the World People's Conference on Climate Change in Cochabamba, Judy Rebick, Maude Barlow. Ian Angus, Pat Mooney, Dale Marshall. The conference will take place April 15th to 17th at the University of Quebec at Montréal. For more information and to register, go to canadiandimension.com or alternatives.ca. That's all for Around the Left for the week of April 7th, 2011.
1: On March 22nd, the Coalition Voices Voix sent a letter out to the federal party leaders indicating concerns about the government's recent record on human rights. Alex Neve is Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada, and he's going to speak to us about that uh, letter and about the the responses that were received. So, Alex Neve, welcome to uh, Alert.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Okay, so uh, let's, uh, first of all, could you maybe just briefly explain again what uh, Voices Voix, what the coalition is all about?
2: Well, this is a new nationwide coalition that has sprung up over the last year in response to the many different ways in which people feel that the space for advocacy, the space to be a dissenting voice, in this country has shrunk dramatically recently and it's it's come about through a variety of government measures which really are unprecedented a wave of clearly punitive funding cuts against organizations which spoke out about issues that the government didn't appreciate so groups that have spoken out about things as important and fundamental as women's equality for instance groups that take action to try to promote and defend the rights of Palestinians, uh, have had their funding cut. But it's gone beyond that as well. We've seen a wave, for instance, of action against watchdogs and, and oversight bodies whose role it is, whose legislated role it is, to keep an eye out over government action with respect to some very crucial social issues and human rights concerns, And when they have criticized the government, the individuals in those offices have found that they've been derided, uh, that they've been fired, that they've not had their terms renewed. All of this has started to have a cumulative impact and left many feeling that it's no longer a a safe and assured thing to speak out and and be critical, to raise concerns in this country, uh, because if you do so... Uh, there may be government action against you, and that's what has brought the Voices coalition together. And we called ourselves Voices because that is really what people feel is at stake here: uh, the ability of voices to speak out, the the need for voices to be heard, and uh, and how essential it is uh, that voices continue to speak uh, in the ongoing effort to shape this country of ours.
1: What were the points that you emphasized in uh, your letter to the federal party leaders?
2: Uh, Well, we we laid it out in three different uh, aspects, Uh, again playing to this theme of voices. So we began by saying it's essential that voices be informed, uh, which is all about the importance of having access to good information in this country so that people can use their voices in a meaningful way. And here we've highlighted concerns about how antiquated and misused Canada's access to information laws are. We've raised the concern, which of course has received a lot of media attention over the past year, about the scrapping of the mandatory long-form census and the ways in which that has curtailed the availability of good information in the country. And then we've also highlighted very troubling steps that the government took um, over the last several years to curtail any funding for organizations which are involved in researching women's equality issues. Uh, Research which again made sure that solid information was available to Canadians uh, about ongoing and very serious concerns with respect to women's equality. So that's voices need to be informed. We also spoke out about the, the fact that voices need to be able to speak out. And, uh, and here we've highlighted concerns about ways in which um, voices have been silenced. Two that we highlighted that I think uh, will be known to many Canadians uh, are, number one, the incredible policing action we saw, uh, an un- unprecedented trammeling of the right to freedom of expression at the time of the G20 summit uh, in Toronto in June of last year, uh, a, a human rights. Uh, uh, situation that has still not been adequately examined and reviewed uh, in any way. And uh, so we have repeated the demand that many have made that there needs to be a solid public inquiry involving both the federal and Ontario governments uh, that gets to the bottom of that.
1: Alex, um, could you uh, let us know uh, what uh, responses you've gotten from the, the party leaders?
2: Uh well we had responses from 4 of the the 5 parties uh the Liberal Party the Green Party the NDP and the Bloc Quebecois have all responded to us uh, and all were I would say very favorable all very clearly shared our concerns that the state of democracy and human rights in Canada has declined considerably in recent years that there are measures that need to be taken to restore that unfortunately despite repeated efforts we have not had a response from the Conservative Party,
1: hmm. and this does seem to specifically implicate that same government, so
2: yeah, it's not to suggest that that things have been perfect under previous governments, uh, and it's also not to suggest that that the most recent government isn't and couldn't be capable of doing the right thing uh, with respect to some of these fundamental concerns in our mind it's not a question of politics. This is not a political organization. It is a question of political will. Uh, It's a question of our leaders, from the Prime Minister down, uh, being sure to put a solid commitment to fundamental democratic principles and our human rights obligations at the heart of how they govern.
1: Now, you you used the term uh, punitive when you discussed the uh, the Harper government's uh, Uh, rationale. Uh, Do you see uh, any other motivation in in shutting down, particularly research and, and advocacy funding?
2: I mean, clearly when it comes to issues of funding, we're not naive. We know that funding comes and funding goes, and especially as governments change, different governments have different priorities, different issues are favored over others. But what we have never before seen is this sort of an approach which just so clearly is targeting organizations which speak out about issues where the government has strong ideological views uh... and uh, and essentially that they get punished for doing so that's been so clearly the experience of the countless organizations across the country involved in women's equality research and advocacy uh, who have been targeted and lost their funding it's also very clearly uh, what lies behind uh, some of the very troubling funding decisions made against some respected organizations like Kairos the um, the interchurch human rights organization which of course has been at the heart of the Bev Oda scandal uh, which lost its funding because the government decided uh, that they did not like their efforts to promote the rights of Palestinian peoples, uh, and, uh, and that is what troubles us. It is, it is clearly a, a vindictive and punitive approach to funding, rather than a principled approach that lays out uh, clear standards and priorities, uh, has, has full transparency with respect to how decisions get made, uh, and goes forward on that basis.
1: Alex, Neve, could you maybe just explain uh, briefly what further actions uh, does Voices Voix intend to take, especially in the event that the Conservatives should end up uh, emerging victorious in May? Uh,
2: Well, I think we will continue to use our voices uh, to to refer to the name of our coalition, uh, because that's what this is all about. Uh, And no matter what the result is on May 2nd, We will have a lot to say to whoever forms the next government about the absolutely essential need to put our pledges and and other reforms that have been suggested by other organizations with respect to strengthening democracy and human rights in the country uh, at the forefront of the next parliamentary agenda.
1: Well, uh, certainly human rights is, a, is an important consideration. And uh, in the, over the course of this uh, election, I hope that uh, the concerns of Voices Voix and, and the related groups uh, get a fair hearing. I want to thank you for uh, explaining uh, and examining these issues with us uh, on alert. Well, thank
2: you so much for your interest. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Uh, bye. And that was uh, Alex Neve. He is the Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada and a member of the Voices Voix Coalition.
0: Sheila Block is the Director of Economic Analysis at the Wellesley Institute and a Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Research Associate. She co-authored the report, Canada's Colour-Coded Labour Market. Alert has caught up with her at her Toronto office to talk about this report and what they found. So welcome to Alert, Sheila Block. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So, give us a quick outline of your report. Where exactly did you find racism in the labor market and how serious was it? So, what we really wanted
3: to do is, using publicly available data, paint a picture of the difference between the labor market experience for racialized and non racialized Canadians. So, we looked at uh, labor market participation rates, uh, employment, unemployment, where people are working and how much money they were making at their jobs, along with uh, what their poverty rates were. And what we really found was that there was a, a, um, there was a, a difference in the, in the experience of racialized and non-racialized workers. And a way to kind of summarize that is to say that for every dollar that non-racialized workers made in Canada in 2005, racialized workers made 81.4 cents.
0: So when you talk about racialized workers, uh, who exactly are you including uh, in that category? And can you give us an idea of how that breaks down statistically?
3: So when we talk about racialized workers, what we're actually um, using from a statistical perspective is people who on the long-form census self-identify as visible minorities. Um, We use the term racialized because... it it kind of encapsulates the fact that racialization is in fact a social construct rather than anything kind of biological um, or uh, or any other cause that it uh, is in fact um, a construct. And so that includes people who uh, identify in one of kind of eight categories, and that includes people who self-identify as black, people who self-identify as um, South Asian, East Asian, and a number of other categories like that.
0: Are Indigenous peoples included in this?
3: This does not include a, uh, a Indigenous peoples. That's a separate survey and, um, and a separate census. And what we really wanted to capture, um, the, the kind of different experience that happens for racialized population uh, and that difference has a number of, of kind of elements to it. One of it is is the immediate impact of colonization that, that Indigenous people have here versus the impact of uh, immigration on racialized Canadians.
0: What difference did you find uh, among visible minorities? Or what differences? Well, what struck me the most, in fact, was the similarities. So that
3: for the vast majority um, of racialized Canadians, they had higher unemployment rates, they had um, lower incomes, and they had higher poverty rates. So that was really the theme that we pulled out um, across the different racialized groups, was those similarities. There were differences among them, um, but what was clear was their relationship to the non-racialized population.
0: In reading the report, We noticed that the income gap between racialized workers and non-racialized workers uh, is pretty wide for first-generation immigrants, but seems to get smaller with each generation and almost disappears by the third generation. So how do you interpret those statistics in your report? Well, I think you have to read those statistics very carefully. What we reported on
3: was trying to... um do a number of things with that data, because often people think, "Oh, this is a story about immigration, right? You know, people come to this country, they um, they pay their dues for a few years, and then things, and, and then they kind of catch up to the rest of Canadians." And what we wanted to make clear is, this isn't only a story about um, immigration; it is really a story about racism and racial discrimination and the way that we did that was we said okay let's compare the immigrant experience of racialized and non-racialized people and then to further control for that we said let's um, look at that by immigration status by age and by education so the results that we have in the study look at that narrow group of people and they look at first generation racialized and non-racialized immigrants second generation and third generation and what's really um, kind of dramatic about that is when you compare racialized female immigrants to non-racialized male immigrants, racialized women make 48.7 cents for every dollar that those non-racialized male immigrants make. So really it was an attempt to compare the immigration experience on that, on that level. We then looked at it at the second generation and there was still um, a large gap for men and a slight smaller gap for women, a much reduced gap. When you're looking at those third generation statistics, um, the sample size gets quite small and you need to be pretty careful about interpreting those results Mm -hmm. because of the small size of the sample.
0: Are you able to separate out any class differences from racism in interpreting the gaps that you found? Uh, For instance, how much of an income gap would there be between a white doctor just starting out and a Chinese doctor or a white nurse and a Filipino nurse?
3: So when you think about the impact of racism on the labour market, I think you have to think about it in a kind of multifaceted way. So it's not only about two individuals um, who are doing the same job, it's also about who gets access to jobs who gets access to education, to be eligible for those kinds of jobs, who's working full-time, who's working part-time. So we didn't go down to the level of of occupational detail that you would see to say this this particular, uh, this non-racialized doctor is making more than that racialized doctor. What we looked at is we looked at, you know, how, how likely are you to be unemployed, where are you likely to be working, and how much are you likely to be making. So those are the, the kind of broader areas that we looked at. But I think there is a role for studies that say, okay, let's isolate just the impact of race within you know within and between individuals who are in the same uh, profession. But I think we also have to look more broadly at labor at market outcomes to really understand the impact of racism in the labor market.
0: Mm-hmm. For for a final question, uh, your report says that poverty is far more prevalent for visible minorities, and that the growing importance of precarious work is an important reason for that. Um, can you elaborate on this at all? We're particularly interested because the next issue of Canadian Dimension will have a special feature on precarious labor.
3: So when we looked at the um, when we looked at employment by occupation and by industry, and again they were in these larger. Um, Larger groupings. What we really saw was that there was an overrepresentation of racialized workers uh, in precarious jobs. So, in jobs that would be at call centers, as security guards, working in um, the restaurant industry, or working in hotels. And those are those jobs, those kinds of precarious jobs. As I'm sure you know, are jobs where your hours are more likely to be uncertain. They're lower-paid jobs. There's more um, uh, fewer benefits and more likelihood of, of, of uh, exploitation. And so the overrepresentation in those jobs really uh, gave you gave us a clue as to why there were these differences in incomes between racialized and non- racialized workers in 2005. Um, we also saw an overrepresentation of racialized workers in the manufacturing industries and we know that those, Um, industries were hit very hard during the recession, and we also know that workers who lost those jobs tend to fall into precarious work, so we expect to see a rise in that.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today, but I want to thank you for speaking with us about the findings that you've highlighted in your report. Oh, thanks so much for uh, talking to me. Alert has been speaking with Sheila Block, Director of Economic Analysis at the Wellesley Institute and a research associate with the CCPA on racism in the labor market.
1: For the last several days, NATO countries, including Canada, have conducted a military campaign against the Libyan government in the name of protecting the Libyan civilian population although this has stoked some controversy within anti-war circles. Joining me to discuss this campaign is Derek O'Keefe. He is a co-chair of the Canadian Peace Alliance, which has put out a statement condemning the NATO attacks on Libya. So welcome to Alert, Derek.
4: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so uh, NATO's military aggression against the Gaddafi regime is being framed as a humanitarian intervention to protect popular forces rising up Against a tyrant. Uh, some people on the progressive anti war left uh, have convinced themselves, therefore, that NATO's actions are justified. How do you see it?
4: Um, well, I don't think the actions are justified. And I think, as a general rule, um, the people on the left should be very, um, very critical of all interventions um, by NATO, given that this is the military alliance of the most powerful. Uh, and you know largest Western countries that is currently occupying Afghanistan, and really um, is a historical anachronism. Uh, NATO started as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and is a cold war uh, alliance and um, it 's really been searching over the last two decades for a reason to continue its existence and relevance and that started with the war in Yugoslavia, which was waged outside of the u n um, you know and now continues with NATO. All the way in Central Asia of Afghanistan, and now North Africa um, going into Libya, uh, you know sort of at the behest of france uh, Britain um, United States, and others so um, you know I think the humanitarian pretext given uh, has to be weighed against all the other actions by the u s and NATO and other powers, uh, including the war in Iraq Afghanistan um, and also the the numerous uh, almost too numerous to to uh, to list here on on your program um, examples of other comparable situations of popular uprisings uh, or civil wars wherein the Western powers have no interest in intervening, or they intervene on the side of the the dictator um, in power, and you know certainly examples like Bahrain and Yemen come to mind. Um, Bahrain in particular. Um, almost, uh, almost on the same day. It was a couple of days apart. I believe that the Saudi government and other Gulf states uh, militarily invaded Bahrain to suppress the democracy protests, and the United States gave this uh, action a pass, while at the same time going in to um, to back the anti qaddafi forces. And there's more I could say there, but I'll, I'll stop at that for now.
1: <laughs> well, I know that uh, in, in recent months we've seen popular uprising across North Africa and the Arab world. I mean, Tunisia and Egypt in particular being described as sort of inspirational. Do you see Libya as uh, on that same trajectory, more of the same, or do you believe that there's a, an altogether different, different phenomenon at work here?
4: Well, obviously, events have taken us to a much different place with the the West intervening militarily. I I do think the the uprising um, that saw Benghazi fall to to rebel forces and saw protests and military or, you know, armed uprisings in many other parts of Libya, I do think all of that was very much inspired and and connected with events in Tunisia and Egypt, where, of course, Western-backed dictators were were chased out by popular uprisings. Um, And uh, so I think the... um, you know, I think in in many ways the uh, the movement in Libya drew inspiration from that, and uh, certainly as the anti-war movement and the progressive movement here in Vancouver, where I'm based, um, we all supported the local Libyan uh, activists who who have been rallying every week uh, for the ouster of Gaddafi. This is a 40-year-old dictatorship um, that I think uh, I think everyone I know who counts themselves on the left. Uh, would like to see this dictatorship go and be overthrown uh in a similar way as egypt and tunisia um but obviously that that's not how the situation has played out um and you know initially there was talk of something of a no fly zone to to take out gaddafi's uh air superiority um but that that was the pretext uh, upon which um the nato powers the western powers uh have gone in with a with a much more extensive military. Intervention. Um, it's not clear where things are going to go now, but um, you know the UN resolution 1973 that was passed um, to to initiate this, this um, intervention was never just about a no fly zone. There's been some good analysis of that resolution, um, making it quite clear that it was um, you know it was to pave the way for a, for a more uh, long-term military. Intervention, and with a Canadian general heading up the NATO mission over Libya, we should be very concerned uh, you know that Canada will get more entangled and drawn in to uh, to the, what's looking like an increasingly disastrous intervention in Libya, which uh, you know uh, has not uh, remember when it when it initially started, they were talking like it would be a two to three day operation, and Gaddafi would be chased out. It's now looking like it's bogging down into more of a stalemate uh, and possibly even a de facto partition of the country. Um, you know, an ongoing civil war where now the West has has chosen sides.
1: Well, um, you you mentioned a, a Canadian general. I'm I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about the actual motives of the of the NATO powers and uh, and Canada in particular uh, in seeking the overthrow of Gaddafi, if not for humanitarian purposes.
4: Well, Canada um, Canada's involvement in Libya. Uh, is interesting and contradictory, um, and there's a number of elements worth talking about. I guess first and foremost would be that, to point out that Canada does have major corporate uh, investments in Libya. This started primarily under the Paul Martin government uh, around the time that Tony Blair was helping to rehabilitate Gaddafi with the West and helping British oil companies like BP and Shell. Um, uh, get into Libya. Paul Martin was doing a similar, Gretsch, in fact, and Paul Martin later were doing a similar thing with Canadian corporations. So uh, SNC Lavalin, for instance, a big uh, military industrial corporation based out of Canada. SNC Lavalin, they're, they're building a prison in Tripoli for the Gaddafi regime. Uh, Suncor, uh, which was Petro Canada before, has a major oil investment in Libya. Um, so Canada does have economic ties to the region. Um, they also, I think, like Britain and France and the United States, they they saw this military intervention uh, once it became clear um, that you know there was a movement uh, to see Gaddafi go and there there was this um, civil war situation developing. I, I think they saw Libya as a chance to to reassert themselves uh, on the right side and sort of take control of of the. Um, take back some control of, of the situation that was spreading across the region, um, to be able to portray themselves uh, as being on the side of democracy, when, of course, in Egypt and Tunisia, uh, Canada especially, was very late in the game at uh, at criticizing the dictatorships at all. Uh, Canada actually was pretty much the last Western country um, of all of them uh, to call for Mubarak's ouster. Uh, almost up until the last days the last week, the Harper government was endorsing mubarak 's plan to uh, to kind of have himself phased out as the dictator, but keep the dictatorship um, uh, in control and you know other other powers have similar motives I think france um, France has always viewed Libya and Tunisia especially as part of their colonial backyard and um the the tunisian dictator ben ali was was very close to the the french government um, of sarkozy and it was a big blow to to france when ben ali was overthrown Um and i think they want to reassert their control in north africa also for sarkozy the president of france he's extremely unpopular right now and looking like he will be a one-term president Um so i think you know, there may have been some motive there as well to turn around his domestic political situation
1: well, by about,
4: le- leading a successful military intervention.
1: Talking about domestic politics, I mean, in, term, in the case of Canada, it's not just the Harper government. As I, it seems as if all three opposition parties were also on side in, in supporting this. Do you have any uh, understanding of what the, their motivations would be in, in going through with this?
4: Um, well, I sort of already speculated in terms of the conservatives, um, and I think for the liberals and certain people within the, the NDP world, um, this was a chance to sort of rehabilitate the whole notion of a liberal humanitarian military intervention. Um, Michael Byers is a professor at UBC um, in international relations, and uh, I think he called the UN resolution for a war with Libya a, a major step forward for human rights or a step forward for humanity. Um, and so I, I think folks like that who are uh, do influence the NDP, especially on foreign policy, um, Libya offered a opportunity to reassert this notion that the Western powers should be intervening militarily um, and that they can do so to further human rights and democracy and so forth. This whole idea, uh, it, you know, had lost a lot of currency after Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. And and other um, obviously disastrous interventions. And I mean, with Libya, it's been sort of a faster process uh... in terms of the legitimacy coming off the the intervention. You know, I think with Afghanistan, it took several years for the NDP, for instance, to clearly call for an end to the occupation of Afghanistan. Um, whereas with with Libya, we've heard nothing from the political parties. But after only two weeks, it's fairly clear that um, this intervention is not going well, even, you know, from their point of view.
1: Okay. Well, on that uh, note, uh, I think we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank you very much, Derek O'Keefe, for uh, sharing your thoughts on this uh, very critical and important subject.
4: Yeah, there's a a lot to try to to squeeze in there and say in a a short period of time, but uh, I hope we've started to to dig into the issue. And um, uh, for your listeners, I would encourage them to take part this weekend in a day of action the Canadian Peace Alliance is doing uh, against the war in Afghanistan, and that's on Saturday, April 9th. So you can uh, look for that. There's probably something uh, in in Winnipeg this weekend.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, sharing that with us, Derek O'Keefe.
4: Okay. Great. Thank you,
1: Michael. Okay. And Derek O'Keefe is co-chair of the Canadian Peace Alliance.
5: Hi, this is Mitch Parole. This is Music is the Weapon. Last December, at the anniversary of the massacre at the Polytechnique, I began, in Montreal, I began to look for songs about that event. And I began to gather them and find some amazing songs, very sensitive, very well-written tunes, and really good things from great Canadian poets about this, and from an Australian poet and an American poet. It really was a Amazing, amazingly horrible event, and it had created an amazing art, which is always a, the horrible contradiction when you deal with stuff. I was going to get around to play it on International Women's Day, and then we had to do something else, and I thought, okay, we'll do it next year. But this morning when I was, when I was going to work, I was listening to the radio, and the New York City police started talking about the fact that they've got a serial killer. And then the Winnipeg police... Start talking about the fact that they had a serial rapist running around Winnipeg and then I thought I don't understand what that is all about or why that is about other than it's some kind of capitalist weirdness something the society produces in people I don't know and here to start are the weird sisters with this memory.
6: Early that morning cup of coffee in her hand her Mother on the cheek said I'm more busy than I'd planned I'll be coming home a bit late, could you keep some supper warm Oh, it's just another busy day That morning Getting ready by the door Kissed her lover on the cheek Said I'll be coming back For more Oh how I love you We got so much to live for Baby been me. Just as easily could have been my sister left there to bleed. Oh, it could have been my father or my brother done deed. Oh, easily Could have been your sister Left there to Bleed, oh it Could have been your father Or your Brother done been you
5: Montreal Massacre by Bev Nicol, Lisa Dorian, and before that, the Weird Sisters with this memory. One of the finest Canadian songwriters around is Stephen Fearing, and he's been applying his craft as a writer and as an artist for the last 20 years, and and he's really a a very clever, clever writer, and this same event moved him to write an amazing song. Here is Stephen Fearing with The Bells of Mourning.
7: The moon can shed no light at all And I believe that we have fallen In the middle of an old highway And the past is rolling over us As men begin to understand what women say They see history reaching out to smother all of us So ring the bells of morning For sorrow and for shame And let the deep well inside each of us swell without rage Come again, must ring the bells of morning. I met a man once, he held himself tighter than a fist. He was hard and fast in his inflexibility, he was threatened by the future. Don't you swear you can't let yourself be vulnerable again? The end. And those of us who know what went before can come again Must ring the bells of morning Oh, ring the bells of morning Ring them loud, ring them long. And let the mother songs to ring Be the peaceful language of the song and Let those ancient voices lead us all to the dawn
5: With Stephen Fearing with the Bells of Mourning on this show about the Montreal Massacre. That's it for this week, folks. Take care. See you next week.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com to hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca.
0: The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.